Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Kara Dansky, a public speaker, writer, and consultant who is committed to protecting the rights, privacy, and safety of women and girls on the basis of sex in law and throughout society. In November 2021, she published the groundbreaking work, The Abolition of Sex, How the Transgender Agenda Harms Women and Girls. She currently serves as president of the U.S. chapter of Women's Declaration International, which seeks to promote the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights. She served on the board of the Women's Liberation Front from 2016 to 2020. And Kara is also an attorney with a JD from the University of Pennsylvania Law School and a BA from the Johns Hopkins University. And she has an extensive background in criminal justice law and policy. I welcome Kara Dansky back to Savage Minds. I thought we'd begin the discussion by your recent article on Sarah Weddington, who is the architect of Roe v. Wade. And given these debates, these current discussions over what Glenn Greenwald calls the misguided discourse surrounding Roe v. Wade, which we'll get to later, I was wondering if you might walk our listeners through, first of all, why Weddington argued about states' rights, that they could not outright ban abortion, for instance. And I mean this in the context of a lot of our listeners coming from Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Singapore. Why was it important that Weddington address the limitation of states in banning abortion rather than something else? Sure. So thanks for having me on. So over the course of the history of the United States, abortion laws have varied tremendously by state. In the U.S., our 50 states plus the District of Columbia have their own criminal systems in place. So every state plus the District of Columbia has its own system for regulating crime and imposing punishments for various crimes. Some of them are similar across states. Some of them are very different. And here in the mid-20th century, we had a situation where Texas made performing an abortion a felony. Several other states did as well. Many states had significantly liberalized their abortion laws, including New York, um, which had very liberal abortion laws in place and still does. And But nonetheless, here we are in the late 1960s in Texas. And if I could just say, say a little bit about Sarah Weddington herself, because I, I think she's, she's an important figure in this, and she passed away in December, 2021. And I just want everyone to know a little bit about her story. She was born in, I believe, 1945. And she went to law school at the University of Texas at the age of 20, which is quite astonishing to me, having gone to law school uh, in my mid twenties. 20 is a very early age for a young woman to have gone to law school. I believe she was one of 20 women in a class of something like 160 total students. And she went through law school and she had trouble getting a job. She eventually got a job through the help of one of her law professors, but it was very difficult for her uh, to get a job because she was a woman at that period of time. Um, previous, before she graduated in 1967, uh, Sarah had not had sexual intercourse with anyone until she met her fiance, Ron, and began having sex with him. And she became pregnant and she did not want to have a baby. And so she and her fiance, Ron, traveled across the border to Mexico to obtain an illegal, but thankfully safe and healthy abortion. 
And that made a difference in her life. She grew up in a fairly conservative part of rural Texas. I'm sorry for the noise, if you can hear the sirens outside. Um, <laughs> it's normal for Washington, DC. Uh, she grew up in a fairly conservative part of rural Texas, and I don't think considered herself particularly liberal or progressive. But the experience of becoming pregnant in an age when Texas made abortion a felony really mattered to her. And so when she graduated, in addition to doing the job that she had gotten, she started participating in underground advocacy to help women obtain either legal abortions or safe but illegal abortions. And she continued to be involved in that advocacy. And at some point, she and her colleagues decided to bring a federal court case challenging the Texas abortion law. And they did so when she was 25 years old. It was her first court case. Uh, she was 25 and that case eventually made it to the Supreme Court. And she did the initial oral arguments in 1971 and the subsequent arguments in 1972. And I just want, uh, I want people to understand that Sarah Weddington, the architect of Roe v. Wade, was a real human being who was coming at this from having a personal experience of having had an illegal abortion. So this was really personal for her. And then she died, as I said, last December. So, so why did she have to challenge the Texas criminal law? Because that's where she was. That's where she was licensed to practice law. In addition to having a smorgasbord of criminal laws all over this country, we also have 50 separate systems for deciding who can practice law. I am, for example, licensed in only one jurisdiction. Many lawyers are licensed in maybe one, maybe two or three. Very, very rarely is anyone licensed to practice in more than a handful of jurisdictions. And she filed there because that's where she was. They filed in federal district court in Austin, Texas. And, you know, eventually they won. And we can talk about ways in which Roe got it right and ways in which Roe got it wrong. Exactly. Well, that's where I'd like to head to. When we look to Roe v. Wade from 2022, it is sort of like Monday morning football. I mean, we can see what went wrong or what could have been done better. But for the time, early 70s, the buildup to this, why did Weddington make the choice to address states' rights over, was there another option? It wasn't particularly a question of states' rights. It was more a question of which aspect of the United States Constitution to rely on. And I want to take a little bit of a step back and say, from a radical feminist perspective, it's frustrating to me to even have to think about fitting women's reproductive liberty into a rights framework at all. Because from the get-go, when we, when we try to fit women's reproductive liberty into a rights framework at all, we're necessarily limiting women's reproductive liberty. And I'm deeply uncomfortable with that. The fact that some states, including Texas, did choose to criminalize abortion means that, in effect, Weddington and her team had no choice but to choose um, some type of constitutional framework for challenging the criminalization of abortion in Texas. So they did so using the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. And my best theory as to why they chose the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, having read her book on the subject, she has a 1992 book called A Question of Choice. And having read it, I can only conclude that that strategy 
was grounded in a previous decision called Griswold versus Connecticut, which was one of a long line of Supreme Court decisions that said that Americans have a constitutional right to privacy under the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. And what Griswold did was say, in, under the facts of that case, it said married women have a privacy right under the due process clause of the 14th Amendment to obtain contraception. And the, the author of Griswold was Justice Douglas, and Douglas was still on the court when the court was deciding Roe v. Wade. And my only theory as to why Weddington and her team chose to argue the case under the due process clause is because they thought they had a reasonable chance of getting Justice Douglas's vote in their favor, and also that Justice Douglas would be able to persuade some of his male colleagues on the bench to go along with that. So my best guess, and I don't know because I wasn't there and I've never spoken to them, but my best guess is that that was their best strategy for winning. They thought they could get the most votes that way. But you also asked, were there other options? And the answer is yes. Um, so at the time, late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was an attorney and she was working with the ACLU. And on behalf of the ACLU, she filed a case, a completely different case having nothing to do with abortion, but it was called Reed versus Reed. And in that case, a young man in the state of Idaho died without a will and his parents were separated and his parents were sort of fighting over who would have the right to administer his estate, their son's estate. And Idaho had a law on the books at the time that said that if someone dies without a will and the next of kin is either a man or a woman, and it could be either, that the property court was to choose the man over the woman. It was just, it, this, this particular state law on its face said that men are to be preferred over women in the administration of inheritance. So Justice Ginsburg, then Attorney Ginsburg, thought that that was ridiculous in how it subjugated women. And she challenged it and she won at the Supreme Court in 1971, which was the first year that Roe v. Wade was argued. Justice Ginsburg won the case in Reed versus Reed by arguing that the Idaho law discriminated against women under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which is different from the Due Process Clause. We could talk a little bit about that, but the point is that Justice Ginsburg is responsible for the fact that in 1971, the Supreme Court decided for the very first time that women have the right to equal protection of the laws. And Justice Ginsburg would go on to argue that Roe v. Wade should have been argued under the Equal Protection Clause instead of the due process clause. And I kind of think she was right. I agree. I've been reading a lot about the what ifs on this case for many years, because as I mentioned to you the other day, abortion became a big deal during the era of the moral majority during the Reagan administration. And I went to a lot of marches in Washington, DC. We were all worried basically about Roe v. Wade being overturned at the time. Then. I read Greenwald's piece the other day where he addresses a lot of the accusations 
by people who claim that this is undemocratic. It's this piece, the irrational misguided discourse surrounding Supreme Court controversies such as Roe v. Wade. And he writes, every time there's a controversy regarding a Supreme Court ruling, the same set of radical fallacies emerge regarding the role of the court, the constitution, and how the American Republic is designed to function. Each time the court invalidates a democratically elected law on the ground that it violates a constitutional guarantee, as happened in Roe, those who favor the invalidated law proclaim that something undemocratic has transpired. That is a form of judicial tyranny for five unelected judges to overturn the will of the majority. Conversely, when the court refuses to invalidate a democratically elected law, those who regard the law as pernicious, as an attack on fundamental rights, accuse the court of failing to protect vulnerable individuals. What are your thoughts over this piece? Because he raises some very interesting points and a lot of points that keep rearing their heads every time, let's say, Roe v. Wade is, is being debated. Yeah, I disagree with him on a few things in that piece, but the fundamental argument that he's making, I think, is spot on. I, I, I also do want to just say, I think that probably the vast majority of Americans who haven't studied this stuff don't really have a ha, have a really granular understanding of how our constitutional government functions. Um, so, and I think that's okay. We can't all be expected to know everything. But I think the fundamental point that he's making, which is that it's kind of ridiculous to argue um, to to argue against the overturning of Roe v. Wade on the ground that it's five or however many unelected judges doing something undemocratic. I think he's spot on that this is exactly the way that our government is designed to function. You know, you, we could go back and have a conversation about why we have a constitution in which Article One talks about the Congress, Article Two talks about the executive branch. Article three talks about the judicial branch and why the framers of the constitution set it up that way. They were drawing on sort of centuries long work by uh, a lot of French intellectuals, a lot of French and British um, political theorists. And so they had a rich body of work on which they were drawing and they set it up so that we would have a legislative and executive and a judicial branch. There's a system of separation of powers which is in place and checks and balances and all of those things. And I think that Greenwald is absolutely right that our system is set up so that the legislative branch enacts the laws, the executive branch enforces the laws and the federal judicial branch interprets the laws. And as he says in that piece, there's an important court case from 1803 called Marbury versus Madison, which set up the principle that the Supreme Court would have the authority and the power to overturn acts of Congress and acts of state legislatures. So from that perspective, there's nothing remotely unusual about the court deciding to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, and then, yeah, we can talk about where I disagree with him, but I think the fundamental point of his piece is spot on. So where people are arguing, either agreeing with Greenwald or not, there seems to be, as you just mentioned, a lot of misunderstanding about how our country runs in a very democratic, basic way, in the sense of when I moved to the States, I was 10 years old. And so we had to learn about the branches of government right around then. And I remember there was this concept, was it called checks and balances? 
Yeah. And that's why the three powers exist because they do sometimes go against each other. But that's sort of part of what I understood to be this autochthonous form of bringing about democracy, where Congress might get something right or wrong, but the Supreme Court is there to maybe fix it or vice versa. Given that, and I'm, I'm sort of bastardizing things here, but given that we have these three planes of power within the American political system, why is it at all surprising that Roe v. Wade is, is about to be overturned or rather that it wasn't overturned long ago, given what Ginsburg even said about the better approach to this. And then a follow-up question to that is, would the Ginsburg approach be something on the table or is that ruled out now? So on the first question, it, it, I don't, there's nothing surprising to me about the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we should say, this is not an example of the Supreme Court invalidating an act of Congress or an act of a state legislature, although the Supreme Court does do that on occasion, this is an act of the Supreme Court reversing itself, right? It, the court itself decided in 1973 that abortion rights could be limited only under certain circumstances. And now the court is saying, we're taking that back. And to a certain extent, I think that this is inevitable. And this is what Justice Ginsburg argued. And the reason that I think that this was inevitable is because the original decision rested on due process. And so the, the reason that I'm saying that is a debate that kind of rages in the federal judiciary and in the legal academy about whether the due process clause protects our right to engage in certain kind of behaviors that are not enumerated in the due process or in the 14th Amendment itself. And there's a bunch of people, including myself, who think, sure, absolutely, the due process clause ought to protect our right to engage in certain kinds of behavior, even if those behaviors are not named in the amendment itself, because we're basically a free people. And as long as we're not harming other people, then we should be able to basically do what we want. And then there's a bunch of people like Justice Alito and the other justices who are probably going to vote to overturn Roe v. Wade think, no, uh, the due process clause was designed for something completely different and abortion is not mentioned therein. And therefore, the court never should have decided Roe v. Wade in the way that it did. And I, you know, and so Justice Alito's camp is going to win on this one. And that's precisely why I think Roe v. Wade has been vulnerable this whole time to being overturned. And was this just the right timing to have the Supreme Court with a certain number of nominees by conservative presidents? Or why now? Oh, that's exactly why. That's, that's exactly why. I mean, and I also just want to say, it, it, so the, the opinion, the draft opinion that was leaked explains what I just said, right? It says, Abortion is not named in the due process clause, and therefore the due process clause does not protect anyone's right to have an abortion. But, you know, we should also understand that the very first sentence of the opinion says something like abortion is a grave moral question that Americans grapple with. That's how Justice Alito starts the opinion. So we shouldn't be blind and think that this is pure judicial theorizing. This is five Supreme Court justices who don't like abortion. 
Well, El Lido, uh, along with uh, Anthony Scaglia, uh, are two of the only Italian the Catholic <laughs> justices uh, having served on the on the court. And Alito, I believe, was nominated by W. Bush. So, and he, I remember at the time, you know, a lot of women were worried about this issue then. And this was, you know, back at the beginning of two thousands. Now, are we? able to address the fact that there is, I mean, we, we have a country that's ostensibly based on the separation of church and state in part, but there clearly is no separation of church and state when you have Supreme Court justices who have very conservative notions, very religious notions about what our body should be used for. How can we square this within the same sentence of we have separation of church and state because that doesn't square out, does it? Ideologically, no. But of course, Justice Alito does not say we're going to overturn Roe v. Wade because five justices don't like abortion because we have religious objections to it. He doesn't say that. What he says instead is that abortion is not a fundamental right under the 14th Amendment. And therefore, the Supreme Court in 1973 had no business saying that it is. What Justice Alito is saying is that states should be able to regulate abortion as they choose. I mean, it's an interesting question when it comes to this, because a, a friend of mine pointed it out recently, people who have religious or moral objections to abortion will say that abortion is murder or genocide, and then they'll turn around and say it's the state's rights issue, which is kind of hypocritical, right? Like if abortion truly is murder or genocide, you can't say that okay, well, some states can have it and some states can't. That's just a completely amoral position to take. Nonetheless, here we are. But yet, in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, there are fundamental rights guaranteed, but there are fundamental rights that are assumed, such as the right to marry, which was also taken up in a court case in terms of I hate this term, but I'm going to use it because that's what it was called then, interracial marriage, in quotes the right to use contraception, and then, of course, the right to abortion. How is it that we can understand when something, a when a right is couched in the due process clause explicitly, as in, for instance, the right to bear arms, a variety of criminal procedure protections, free speech, freedom of religion, or the, um, the implicit but unnamed, such as my right to use con contraception. And let's chalk in there, or put in parentheses perhaps, the fact that with the what is called the abortion pill, RU486, that is also being taken up. It's sort of that halfway point between contraception and abortion, right? So it seems that women's bodies are never really written in black ink, covered by the 14th Amendment. That leaves us perpetually vulnerable to changes of laws, no? Yeah, so those other rights that you mentioned, speech, bearing arms, various criminal provisions, those are all in different amendments. They are not in the 14th Amendment. So those are enumerated elsewhere. Um, but the question of what is protected under the 14th Amendment, I agree with you, is very murky. And that's precisely 
the, the questions that we're grappling with and why so many people are so concerned that the Supreme Court might now overturn Griswold, which granted uh, married women the, the right to use con contraception. I'm not thinking of the name of the case at the moment, but after Griswold decided that married women should be allowed to use contraception and that their right to do so was protected as a privacy right under the 14th Amendment, there's another court case that ruled that that right extends to all of us. Um, but in any event, that's why people are so gravely concerned that the court might revisit those decisions as well. Um, but your point is very well taken. And I, I wrote a piece recently really trying to unpack Roe v. Wade itself and the implications of overturning it. And reading the language of Roe v. Wade, something I was really struck by was that these judges, the seven judges who voted for um, who, who voted on the side of Roe v. Wade in the majority, the language of the opinion itself is unbelievably dehumanizing to women. The court talks about how the, the important interests involved, and it sort of does this weighing of the interests, but the interests involved include the interests of doctors in being, who, who were, of course, at the time, mostly male, the interests of doctors in being permitted to perform abortions and the interests of the state in being able to limit the accessibility of abortion. And women's interests were like, not even a thought. They're like not even mentioned in the language of Roe v. Wade itself. And when you contrast that to a previous case called Skinner, this is from the 1940s where um, I believe it was Oklahoma had a law on the books that said if a person committed three or more felonies of moral turpitude, that sort of fancy legal speak for really bad crimes, um, if, a, if a person committed three of these or was convicted of committing three of these, the person could be forcibly sterilized. And a man named Skinner challenged this law and the Supreme Court ultimately ruled that Skinner could not be forcibly sterilized. Um, but the language that it uses is so revealing about the respect to which the court wants to give his autonomy, his liberty as a full human being. And that's in the 1940s. It's, it, it, forget about the ruling itself. The point is that it is very clear from the language of the opinion that the court valued him as a person, as a human with full reproductive integrity and autonomy. And then fast forward to the 1970s and you've got a Supreme Court evaluating an abortion case. And even though it granted women a privacy right to abortion, it did so using language that didn't even discuss. Well, it did discuss women's interests to a point, but at the end, it concludes with this astonishing paragraph that says that the respective interests at stake are the interests of the doctors and the state. And I just find that so interesting and reflective of what you just said about how it seems like the due process clause of the 14th amendment doesn't really respect women as autonomous human beings. And I agree with you, but then I also would want to go back to something I said at the beginning, which is that if our society considered women to be autonomous human beings with reproductive liberty, then our ability to obtain abortions would follow naturally. This wouldn't even be a question. And that's why I just bristle at putting this into a rights framework at all. Yes, and as you were speaking just now, I was thinking about a lot of the ironies and 
who is sitting upon the Supreme Court today? And my mind darted back to 1991, Anita Hill. Sure. And I will never forget, I was, we were all, all my friends, I was in Brooklyn, we were all calling each other, getting phone numbers of senators, sending faxes, remember those? Sending <laughs> faxes to like Edward Kennedy. We were outraged by what was going on. And I remember Nina Totenberg reporting for NPR, revealing the allegations from the FBI report for the first time. And this was all really horrifying. And of course, Clarence Thomas, you probably know this. It was a friend of mine who's a lawyer in New York who told me this maybe 10 years ago, but she was like, you know, he hasn't written one opinion in all these years he's been sitting on the court. Like this is someone who's not a great legal mind. He's not going to go down in history as a great Supreme Court justice, yet he was placed there, nominated, even to the chagrin of people who could not believe what Anita Hill testified to. Here we are having a man like this decide in our bodies. We mentioned Alito, and, and then we know a lot of the other usual suspects who have voted to overturn Roe v. Wade, but our lives are in the balance over what mostly men are deciding of us. And then the most recent Supreme Court nominee, I'm so sorry, I was horrified by the fact that she could not define what a woman is. And paradoxically, she's now stepped into the Supreme Court when exactly what we know she knows, and she knows that we know what a woman is. Paradoxically, she's walked into this court when vagina havers rights are going to be diminished any day now. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I mean, something that probably many of us remember, but but maybe many of us don't or don't or didn't know in the first place. Uh, it was then Senator Biden who was chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee in 1991. And I have always held him responsible for how Anita Hill was treated. And I, I, I'm just disgusted and appalled at his behavior. And he has never outright apologized to her. He has expressed regret at how the situation happened, but he's never outright apologized to her. And um, yeah, I mean, that's that's what we're dealing with. Well, the language, when you were saying the language it was used to describe this man's right to not be sterilized. And I kept thinking about how Hill was treated. How, yeah. remember how Orrin Hatch spoke to her? Oh my God. And, and Arlen Specter. I mean, those two men, they were like the circus clown car. And I just think we have between this, Anita Hill, I mean, between Anita Hill, this uh, soon to be overturning of Roe v. Wade and what you and I, we know each other uh, virtually from our work on us being vagina havers instead of women. The fact that you can't say women in certain circles today, the fact that women in our country and in the UK and elsewhere, Canada, are being placed into prisons with men, or rather men are being placed into women's prisons, but we can't say men, where we have people now, the current trial of Alison Bailey against Stonewall, where she has to refer to these men as she, because of the bench book of the judges that is now recommending that people refer to men in dresses as she. And I'm thinking, we've really been screwed over just in our short lifetimes. We've been really screwed over here. 
Very much so. So so this is where I do take some issue with Glenn Greenwald's piece, where he kind of dismisses those of us who do think it's important that it was all men uh, who decided Roe v. Wade. And, the you know, partly the reason I think that's important is what's happening here is not mysterious. And, you know, there was a there's a famous exchange between John Adams uh, b- before we declared independence, before the U.S. declared independence, and John Adams is having a male correspondence with his wife, Abigail, and Abigail sort of famously says to him, uh, I hope you declare independence, and I hope that when you're forming a new system of government, you remember the ladies. And, and John's response to Abigail is basically, uh, depend upon it, we know better than to repeal our masculine systems. Right. And so what he's saying there is give it up. You know, we're, we're you're not going to get a vote. You're not going to get to be in juries. You're not going to get to participate in civil society. And he's not being mysterious or hidden about it. He's saying it outright. He's saying when we form a new system of government, we are going to prioritize men over women. And that's what they proceeded to do for hundreds of years. And so when when Greenwald sort of dismisses women who care that women have been shut out of civil society for hundreds of years, it's a little bit frustrating to say the least. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now back to our show. Absolutely. And let's not forget, I love Glenn's work. He was someone with whom I communicated quite a bit about 10 years ago over a lot of his work on international politics. But he also rooted for Bradley, now Chelsea Manning. And I totally agree that Bradley slash Chelsea Manning should never have gone to prison, blah, blah, blah. I'm a huge supporter of journalists not going to prison or of people who leak information not going to prison. Okay. But he was supporting Manning all the time. It was all she, she, she. He even made some comments about Manning that I deem sexist in the way that men refer to each other through intellect, esteem, respect, and women, how they look. And this is par for the course, I hate to say. So he put into the public sphere of his writing, a lot of this transgender ideology, which he had to walk back, if you recall, about, gosh, sometime last year now, because there was a big brouhaha between him and Manning. And I think Greenwald started to see what we have been saying all these years. And I've written him about this. I said, look, really like your work, but this is a bit of a problem because TW, no AW, you know? I mean, there's this like, (laughs) no. And you need to start, and I was talking to him about the the prisons, uh, women's rights, our ability to meet, meet in any way. Let's not even just say meet to, you know, have a, like in the UK, women's place meetings, which they can barely have without massive protests, fair enough. Protest all you like, but it's the violence, it's the threats. You're not seeing men, men who are writers, men who work on the scene of human rights tend to acknowledge that what we have happening to us doesn't happen to them. There are some exceptions. When I see journalists out there writing about the trans movement 
over the past 10 years, I write them and I say, oh, I hope you're not getting too many th death threats. And invariably people like even Jesse Singal wrote me and he was like, no, not as many as you get. Like he knew. So, mm -hmm. you know, for all the TWAW out there, people know very well that ain't true. And they know who is the bepenist or front noodler and who is the vagina haver. So we're in this very strange era and it's really neoliberalism. Uh, I read a piece the other day that was about very critical of Obama and that pointed many fingers at Obama for what's happened today. I won't address that right now, but I find it very interesting how we're seeing a lot of people in and out of law indicating a lot of presidents and a lot of powers within the Democratic Party who've helped to chip away at our rights. And I think this speaks to a lot of what's gone on around gender identity, where we see the same people who are Democrats, who think themselves to be progressive, who think themselves to be on the left. I mean, there are people even who are much further left than the Democrats who have allied with the Democrats because they don't see a third party taking off, for instance. Now, what is your take on this in terms of the same Democrats who are running around saying, you misgendered her at the same time being unable to recognize that there's a huge problem if you want to make it your life's mission to making you and me say she but then on the other hand complain that we're about to lose a vital protection as one woman put it the other day on social media our right to choose to not die in childbirth yeah a friend recently said something to me and I and I she allowed me to quote her anonymously on Twitter and it was along the lines of the political left will put you in prison with a man the political right will make you have his baby and I'm not really sure that any statement can kind of encapsulate where women are in the United States today than that um what what will the Democrats do? I mean, it's interesting. Just today, a group of Republicans, mostly women, but some men, introduced something called the Women's Bill of Rights in both houses of the United States Congress. And I was very happy to be among the original supporters of the bill. Women's Declaration International USA chapter supported this bill. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. It defines the word sex to mean either biologically female or male at birth. It defines the word woman and the word girl to mean human female and men and boy to mean human male, et cetera. And it goes through, it, it, it defines the word mother to mean female parent and the word father to mean male parent. And I, I, I don't think you've seen it, but I think I can speculate that if you if you did, you would like it. It defines terms very simply and accurately. And it is now before the United States Congress, both chambers, literally as of today. Brilliant. But, but, but you know this is going to get some, some whinging going on by the, again, the neoliberal class of people who will say, but they don't mention Nemo. <laughs> Not once is Nemo mentioned. Right. So, so I am fascinated to see how the Democrats position themselves in being against something called 
the Women's Bill of Rights. That's literally the name of this bill in both chambers. It's called the Women's Bill of Rights. And I am fascinated to see how Speaker Pelosi positions herself as being in opposition to something called the Women's Bill of Rights. I just, she's a brilliant politician, so I'm sure she'll come up with something, but I don't know. I just don't know how she's going to be able to do this, um, but I'm fascinated to see how she does. And I'm very hopeful. This is not the topic that you wanted to talk about. So thank you for indulging me here for a yes, minute yes. because I I am very hopeful that that this bill will be something that gets the attention of the mainstream news media. I have thought for a very long time that part of the reason that mainstream media outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post will platform conservative opposition to gender ideology because they know that gender ideology has a shot at beating conservatives politically. Whereas if radical feminists, gay rights activists, and left-leaning scientists could get a platform in the media, we would win this thing because the vast majority of Americans across the political spectrum, I don't care about ideology, I don't care about religion, the vast majority of Americans across the political spectrum would agree with what radical feminists, gay rights activists, and leftist scientists have to say on this topic. And that is precisely why we are shut out consistently. And I am hopeful that with Republicans introducing something called the Women's Bill of Rights, which defines terms in very very simple and digestible and accurate ways, that finally, finally, we might get a voice in the mainstream media. This would be great. However, I'm sure you, you've already experienced this, having been on Fox News, that people will not platform our voices very easily. And those who do, like Tucker Carlson, and he's been platforming Greenwald quite a bit, and many others, right? Right. And he's also, I remember him from the early days of the Iraq and Afghanistan incursions, where I was patently against it. I was really revolted by a lot of things he said. But to his credit, he has said, that he got it wrong. And here we had just last week, a vote on the situation in Ukraine and Russia, and you have the Democrats becoming now the warmongering party, which is quite worrying to me, even if I won't, I have not registered as a Democrat, let's say, and I'm rather happy not to at this point, just because I think partisanship is part of the problem of our society and our political culture. But I am worried that when I see the re- Republicans opposing war, just last week, and right. we're not seeing Democrats doing this. So we're sort of, this is what I have called a political strangers on the train, crisscross, you know, each one that is, have they switched places? It's like political Freaky Friday. What's going on? Because I don't expect Tucker Carlson, I do not expect Republicans, but some will. Um, I don't expect the right wing, more majority Republicans to say, oh, let's have abortion. They won't do that. But the one thing they will do is acknowledge that we exist. <laughs> you know, they they know that if I I I seeded a I seeded my lawn, I made grass that didn't make me a man. And yet we have the quote unquote neoliberal class pseudo leftists 
who believe that doing certain things now is an intrinsic marker of being man or woman. It's very strange to me, this. Right. I mean, and of course, they're paid to do that. Right. I mean, we, we both yeah. know from following Jennifer Billick's work that there's a massive amount of money. And this is one of the things I, I try to do when I am able to get a media spot like on Tucker Carlson is just really emphasize that part of the reason this has been so successful is that it has been framed as though it's a civil rights movement for a small group of people, when in reality, it's a very top down, heavily funded uh, movement to, as I say in my book, abolish the material reality of biological sex. Um, but but I, one thing I do want to say, since we're, we're talking about Roe, here's one reason to be hopeful. And I should say, I am very often naively optimistic in times when I have no place being so. I just am somehow naturally optimistic. I don't know why. But so in the, in the, in the wake of the leak of the Roe v. Wade opinion, all of a sudden, everyone started to know what a woman is, right? And I feel like if we have a shot, I mean, let's be clear, I am not happy that Roe is about to be overturned at all. But if if we have a shot at having a women's class consciousness, the overturning of Roe v. Wade might do it. And if the overturning of Roe v. Wade results in American women having a class consciousness as a class of human beings that is coherently defined as women and girls and exclusively defined to include women and girls, because of course, women and girls are the only people who need abortions, whatever the ACLU might have to say about it, then maybe we can also get a class consciousness when it comes to defining who we are for other purposes, such as prisons and bathrooms, et cetera. I agree. And like I said earlier, I was surprised this wasn't overturned in the 80s. I don't see this as a horrible thing. I mean, it is going to be a horrible thing for those women and girls who cannot access abortions. That cannot be overstated. And I do hope that women can band together, finance these women and girls who need financing to go over state lines, go over lines to get proper health care because this is a health care issue. This is part of the problem in the States is that we've allowed abortion to become a dirty word. Uh, it's almost as if it has to be called the A word because of the way the moral majority took over in the 80s. And now in the 80s, I wasn't aware because I was so, so young, I was not aware how much or how little time had transpired between Roe v. Wade and then the Reagan White House bringing in all these threats to overturn it. Mm -hmm. Now I'm looking back and I'm thinking, well, it might in the end be a good thing, politically speaking, again, not for those women and girls who cannot access abortion soon. Uh, that makes my blood boil. But the political strategy, we might be able to get better and right. And I also think something needs to happen. I think we need to stop allowing men to make this into a moral issue. And then I think it needs to start with men or women saying no to men, because this does trickle down to the women who are raised in conservative backgrounds, who like the architect of Roe v. Wade, Weddington, coming mm -hmm. from a conservative part of the country, life experiences have a way of changing your political outlook. And this is universal. It happened to me. I was in the US Army when I was quite young. I was commissioned as an officer. 
then guess what happened? France refused to allow the UK, or rather the US from a UK airbase to fly over its airface to bomb Libya. And this happened right before I was about to be commissioned. I was commissioned, but I would not take a seat in the US Army because I sort of became politically aware of the hypocrisy of our government at that moment. Everyone has their moment. And, and of course, there were many more for me. But the thing is, is that we have allowed Roe v. Wade to be this marker of shame that you either are pro-killing babies, this is the way it's couched in our country, or you're a puritanical prude who wants to control women's bodies, where I believe those two spaces are also fictions. I think if you speak to the most conservative and religious women, you will find many stories amongst them of someone who died from a botched abortion, of someone who needed an abortion and did not get one and then faced a lifetime of economic hardship, psychological distress, etc., etc. Children who were unloved because of that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then go to the other side. And clearly women who are pro-choice, a lot of women, I've met them, they don't actually agree that they themselves would have the abortion, but they agree that women should be able to have that choice. And I think there needs to be more discussion between the right and the left of vagina havers so that we can actually understand that you want to get a crown bridge that's gold and I don't, that's your, you know, yes, it's choice politics, but in a way we have to sort of force the issue, my body, my choice all over again, because I don't think that was really cemented in more than a t-shirt logo. I don't think a lot of people who argue against abortion understand the larger implication for women's rights and what that means to deny someone medical care. This isn't an abortion, this is medical care. I think so. So one thing is that I have often sort of thought if, if we could put um, a bunch of women in a room, say 10 people on one side, 10 women on one side of the abortion debate, 10 women on the other side of the abortion debate. Could we come up with a, a solution? Like, could we come up with something that um, everyone can live with? I don't know the answer to that, but I do wonder. But the other thing is, I'm, and this is probably more than we have time to go into right now. Maybe we could another time. I'd also, I, I think that we need to move away from talking about abortion as choice. And part of the reason I think that is I'm much more interested in women's reproductive liberty. And I also worry uh, from a radical feminist perspective that if abortion is a choice, then prostitution can also be a choice and surrogacy can also be a choice. And I'm much more interested in women's reproductive liberty, which is to say, we just get to, we, it, it all flows from a societal belief that women are fully autonomous human beings. If we had grounded in society the understanding that women are fully autonomous human beings, I think that would go a long way toward, you know, like, as I said, abortion access would flow naturally from that, as would more restrictions, or I would hope bans on the rental of women's wombs, which is surrogacy, or the rental of women's sex bodies, which is prostitution. I agree with you, although I used choice earlier to make this into where we are regarded as, as subjects with lives, interior lives, where when I go to a doctor, it is zero person's business what that doctor and I say to each other and what is done to me. 
that's where I say choice in the sense of doctor says you're six weeks pregnant and I'm like yay or I'm like no (laughs) I need to have an abortion and that's that I resent that any medical procedure become politicized when it has to do with an individual's body and an individual's rights to her own choices about her body. That's what I meant about choice in terms of that. Now I see what you're saying, that choice can be extrapolated to the, what they call the, the sex worker market. And I see the problem there. I think the reason that was successfully to some degree, I have to say applied, is because there's no class consciousness in the United States as a political discourse. Hence, 100%. It's, very, it's very easy for people to say, I hate it when they say this, but I'll just repeat what they say. Well, it's much easier for me to make money as a sex worker than it is for me to work at McDonald's. Whoa, <laughs> huge difference. We've all had shitty jobs. I had a shitty job all throughout university. Hated it, hated the polyester uniform, hated the smell after I got out of this restaurant. There's a huge difference, however, between working at a crappy restaurant for a bad salary and then my allowing myself to be exploited, calling it empowerment because I said I chose for a lot of money when we all know that this is not, in fact, a choice. This is a false choice. The dichotomy of choice has to have options and sex work has no option if the only way that you're able to eat is to perform sex acts, then there has something very wrong with the way that we have conceived of a political choice. I believe a political choice would allow the subject to have options and sex work has no options. And and to put it another way is you rarely see someone on the Supreme Court (laughs) saying, gee, after I finish this gig, I want to become a prostitute (laughs) or a sex worker, (laughs) right? Right. Um, And I, I hate to put it like this, but we have bastardized choice when it comes to sex work and all sorts of it, including the porn industry, even I should say pornography industry, the way that pornography even has been sort of cutened up with the word porn and all the pornography terms have been used within journalism, major political discourse. So you'll read an article talking about a political fluffer and so forth. And it's like, Mm. what is this about? Why are we doing this? And why have we allowed for rather horrendous work practices, if you're going to call sex work work, if we're allowing these work practices to occur under the guise of liberation and choice, absolutely ridiculous. So I see your issue with the word choice, although I was using the word choice in terms of the privacy of my being able to go to a doctor and choose what kind of health care, like if I'm pregnant, what I'm going to do, because that would involve a certain kind of choice. But I, I worry that just like our inability to say woman in certain places without being mobbed online or having been kicked out of our our profession, I worry that now that same battle linguistically is about to take place in our bodies in the States where obviously the wealthy will be able to access abortion in other States. They're not the ones I worry about the women who will not ever be able to even afford a Greyhound ticket over state lines. This is where my heart breaks. And there will be, unfortunately, attempts to do abortions and do them badly and lives will be lost. 
and this will be used by the right to sort of show the evil underbelly of women who seek abortions. And I would like to stop that before it happens. I would like, as you say, get 10 women in from each side of this discussion. And I think it would be actually quite interesting if we can see, and I'm hoping and crossing my fingers, that we might see a few Republican females come out and say that they had abortions and to be able mm -hmm. to speak about it because we've been given too much focus on the neoliberal, excuse my language here, bullshit of identity politics. And I think it's time that women start really talking to each other. And that includes women on the right. No, absolutely. And I totally agree with you that, that the U.S. lacks a class consciousness and that you know, it, it, it's all, it's, all, it's so individualism, you know, it's like, it's all individualism, my body, my choice smacks of US individualism. And that's part of what I find so frustrating about the whole thing. But yes, absolutely. We need to be talking um, with one another. And, you know, I'm really excited that Women's Declaration International USA is having a conference in Washington, D.C. in the fall called Reigniting the Women's Liberation Movement. And it's in part for that purpose, right? Like we've lost our way. So many wonderful things happened in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Not only did we get Roe v. Wade, but we also got Title IX and domestic violence shelters started sprouting up. Rape uh, rape crisis centers started sprouting up. We got the laws changed so that women could more freely divorce their husbands. Women could more freely own property. Women were allowed to have their own bank accounts. There was so much progress that was made and we still have a lot of it, but we're losing ground. And so, you know, I agree with you. A lot of these conversations need to happen. And a lot of these conversations can happen among women across the political spectrum. Absolutely. I mean, before we spoke, I was telling you about my stalkers. And the fact is that in Italy, there are now very serious laws on the books to deal with stalking, but the processes are still slow. And then you've got these police officers that ask you, well, what did you do to them? <laughs> and I'm thinking, is this like the tight jeans that came out in Naples about 15 years ago where the judge basically blamed the rape victim? So progress happens in hiccups at times where you've got the law on the books, but you don't have any policing of the law or you don't have quick enough policing of the law. And so I am hoping that one day we can actually speak about and to each other on equal terrain. Because one thing that I have seen, especially since my mid thirties in its ageism, but ageism has this very strange accentuating power of sexism and you can see it everywhere. It's like, what's that film, The Sixth Sense? I feel like that kid in The Sixth Sense. Like after 35, definitely after 40, I could see dead bodies everywhere. It was just sexism came out of the woodwork. And it's something that I didn't see when I was in my early 20s. I didn't see it in my late 20s. I saw sexism, but I did not see it the way I see it now. And it's all built into the same system that keeps you and I from saying man, or we'll get kicked off Twitter. <laughs> After I think you and I spoke many months ago about some of the prisoners in the US who've made complaints about men being in their prisons. Mm -hmm. I can't even tell you how much digging I had to do over that. It's really painful to have information in your hands and to be stonewalled by these institutions that should not be stonewalling, especially right. not stonewalling journalists. And we're, it's really this strange cha-cha-cha. So here's what I think. 
where progress takes a few steps forward and a few steps back, just like that cha-cha-cha. I think we're somehow bizarrely back in the 50s, in another 50s, of course, not the same 50s. But it's the 50s that paradoxically created the notion of the transgender subject where, well, you're really a woman because you like lace and because you like brassieres and you like strutting around in high-heeled shoes. Like, in what planet is that a reality that we start to call people by virtue of what they like to do? I mean, it's very strange. Mm -hmm. And now our right to health care and the rights of women and girls who will not be able to access affordable abortions in other states, I mean, this will forever change their lives. I'm thinking, who in the Democratic Party will speak up cogently for this? Will Pelosi, who sat in front of her $20,000, $30,000 refrigerator eating $7 frozen yogurt, telling everyone that lockdown could be fun? You know, right. sorry, I'll never forget that. Right. I mean, I think it's going to be very interesting to see if a Democrat. Well, I can say I have I, I I've not seen a single um, congressperson uh, on the Democrat side stand up. However, um, I do just want to leave listeners with the with the confidence that there are Democrats at the state level who are standing up. So for example, there was a bill to protect women's sports for women and girls in the state of South Carolina. It passed, the Republican governor signed it, but here's the interesting thing. It passed with the support of 14 House Democrats in South Carolina and six Senate Democrats. So it's not happening at the federal level, but it's starting to happen at the state level, which means we're starting to see cracks. We're starting to see cracks in the Democrats' refusal to acknowledge that there is a leftist critique of so-called gender identity. And it's about time, because how many years have you and I been called right-wing, religious, da 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 and it's like, whoa. And then you're on Twitter telling them, I'm a leftist, and they're like, they will then accuse you of something else, of being a racist, just because that fits that narrative, right? Right. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to hear this, that there are more and more Democrats at the state level who are pushing back because until last year, most of the legal adoptions of sex-based identity was happening almost uniquely amongst Republicans. And it left a lot of these women doing the advocacy, even though they might have been on the left and some definitely were, being slandered as being right-wing collaborators with the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. So tell us, what is the future going to hold then from this Roe v. Wade? I mean, we don't know how the politicians themselves will react, but on the ground, what can be done in the meantime until we can hopefully get a new piece of legislation or a new Supreme Court decision to protect our rights to health care? What will happen to the women and girls who need these abortions and what can be done to help them access safe abortions? There's no question, as you said, that women and girls are going to be harmed by this, especially poor women and girls and women and girls of color, especially in red states, which are also among our poorest states. Um, so we're going to have to go back to what we did in the 1960s. Uh, my friend Lauren Levy, who's the vice president of WDI USA, has personal stories of passing a hat and collecting money for women who needed to travel to obtain abortions. And we're going to have to go back to doing that. I also really want to encourage everyone to read a book called Natural Liberty by Carol Downer. It's available on Amazon and I'm sure other places 
And this is essentially a guide to women's ability to monitor and control our fertility naturally. And we're going to need to have that information. So I hope everyone has access to the information contained in that book. It's really incredible. In the meantime, you know, we're, we're a little bit, we're stuck when it comes to voting, especially, well, at either the state or the federal level, because many of us want to vote Democrat in order to protect abortion rights at the state level, but won't do it because the Democrats are so stuck in this stupid gender identity thing. So we're a little bit stuck in terms of electing elected officials who will protect women's rights. Um, We're stuck when it comes to that. We will definitely eventually see another court case. And I hope that when we see it, it will be grounded in an understanding that women are fully complete autonomous human beings and that our right to access abortion flows naturally from that to the extent that it has to be fit into a rights framework. I hope that that rights framework will be the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment rather than the due process clause for all the reasons that we've been discussing. And, you know, I'll I'll just reiterate, I am very hopeful that if there is any silver lining to this, that it be that women develop a class consciousness based on our sex as women and girls.